0: The next Packet Pushers Virtual Design Clinic is on December 19th, 2018. VDCs are live virtual events where you attend for free and no one contacts you after unless you opt in. We're going to do some Ask Me Anything segments with a panel of industry experts. We will hear presentations on continuous integration and continuous testing for networking, as well as the impact of NVMe over fabrics to network design and more. There's another presentation on SD-WAN coming. Celebrate the holiday change freeze by registering at packetpushers.net slash VDC. And now on with today's episode. You know you want to. You know you do. You want to split that cluster up, stretch it out. One cluster, two sites, you get business continuity, redundancy, and you don't have to do any weird engineering. Or not. Is stretching a cluster really that simple? We argue that there's a lot more to think about on today's episode of Data Knots. packet pushers.net you can find this in all of our data knots shows about infrastructure engineering or just search for data knots spelled like astronauts in your favorite podcatcher. you can follow us at data knots underscore show i am ethan banks at ec banks with me is chris wall at chris wall for whom austin bergstrom international airport has installed a personal lounge for his exclusive use yeah that's the kind of people that's how that's how we roll here on data nuts mr wall just a quick question buddy how you doing
1: Uh, snazzy. Although I felt like we should buy some leg warmers or whatever for the warming up of your cluster stretching. I don't know. You don't (laughs) want to accidentally pull an Achilles
0: cluster. Bad joke. Something. Yeah, we'll work on that. Our guest today is Eric Abelson, owner and consultant at InfraGeeks. Eric, welcome to the show and uh, tell us a bit about who you are and what you do. Hello there. Well, it's good to be here. So,
2: quick little background. I'm an expat Canadian, currently with my own company as an independent consultant working in France, of all places, mostly in the Paris region, and spend most of my time in the last decades with the lower-level infrastructure bits and pieces focusing on virtualization and storage, hence the subject at hand today. Uh But a background before that in identity management, directory systems, and data protection, of course, going way, way, way back to my teens, so, that's been one of my hobby horses for a long time, and to the point that I actually started up an outsourced backup company in the late 90s for backing up desktops and notebooks for Nortel before it imploded. So, the availability part's what really turned me on to the stretch clusters, and remembering that this is for availability, you still need backup to protect your data. It's not the same thing. <laughs> of course.
0: Yes, uh, right. Uh, having more than one physical site is not the same as backing up your data. Absolutely. Well, Eric, we should probably start by defining for the purposes of this conversation what we mean by stretch clusters. What are your thoughts here? Well, the key thing for me when we talk stretch
2: is it is active-active. I've got stuff running on both sides. And the theory is if everything is working and designed correctly, one of those sites or part of one of those sites should be able to just go away and the workload that was running there should be able to reboot itself and just keep on running on the fall of the secondary site.
0: So active-active, okay, that's that's a, a key component here. And stretching a cluster, it's actually we've got members of the same cluster in geographically disparate locations. Is that a fair way to describe it? Yeah, the question also comes to where is the line between stretch and
2: just a really big data center because hmm. I've got a good example is North of Paris. There's a great co-location place at Equinix and they have two great big buildings that are technically on the same site, but they have their own power. They have their own generating systems. Both of them are autonomous sites. So technically if you put some stuff in each of them, it's a stretch cluster. And of course, according to some people's licensing models that can make a big difference.
0: Well, maybe we should give some examples of, uh, of exactly what we mean here when we Just to give some product uh, examples of things that people might be familiar with. Anything come to mind if we, I don't know, pick a silo. Compute, storage, database, uh, something else?
2: Well, the first two tend to go hand in hand because compute without storage really doesn't do anything, which has always been the the finicky part of the exercise because you have to make sure your storage is stable across both systems. Database is very specific. I mean, we've got Oracle Rack and a whole number of other very, very use case and product specific clusters that will do that active-active and they have their own requirements for how far you can stretch them, which is obviously very specific to latency, sensitivity, and things like that. But the big one that I find everywhere is hypervisors. I mean, it's, it's VMware piloted the whole idea of having high availability, and then when they started putting in the context to say, oh, and by the way, these machines are on one side of the cluster," so rack awareness, and then you just start pulling that further and further apart as long as you can support the latency issues. Hmm
0: yeah compute without storage doesn't get you very far i think that was a, an interesting point a necessary point and uh, a lot of interesting conversations and some companies have sprung up around the notion of uh, distributed storage well that's the thing that
2: i'm finding very intriguing on two fronts is all the hyperconverged players are pretty much all offering some kind of stretch cluster awareness in their fl- clustered file systems or clustered storage systems because sometimes it's not a file system it's just block
0: Now, we've also mentioned two locations here, stretching clusters between two, but is it possible or have you seen scenarios where three or maybe more locations you would stretch clusters between? Is that actually a thing?
2: I only have one place that I've seen actually go that far, but the general model is that it's active-active on two sites that are relatively close, and unfortunately being relatively close means also they share the same risk domain, and a third disaster recovery site that is considerably further away. Now, there are actually even some products like Hedvig that make that right into the storage layer so that they can say, you have a three or a four data center system. And what they do is they say, whatever two closest ones, whoever acknowledges first, as soon as I've got the acknowledgement that data has gotten to the other site, the other returns become asynchronous. So you can actually have uh, two data centers all sharing the same storage cluster transparently, and it will automatically just handle where the data is supposed to go as fast as it can get there. And if it can't get there fast, well, it will become asynchronous, but it won't get the equipment, equipment, equipment. Uh, speaking French too much here, equipment. So that one comes to whatever, whoever comes up first gets, gives the okay to say, yes, I've got a copy and we can go. And they can have those split between multiple clouds and all sorts of things.
0: But, but yeah, that is a rare thing. For the most part, I've only ever seen, the, the assumption is two sites is, is most typically what you're dealing with.
2: Almost always, yeah. That's, I would have to admit, a pretty exotic uh, configuration that very, very few people are ready to jump into. Plus, you always have the problem that now, how do you keep the compute in sync if one of these sites has got an asynchronous backend? That doesn't really work very well.
0: Uh, You mentioned another interesting point there, uh, that of network latency and the impact of network latency between cluster members, right? Certain products have specific guidelines. In order for this to work, you can only be 10 milliseconds or 50 milliseconds or whatever it is between the two, or, or this doesn't work anymore. So for most of these applications, if you could generalize, Eric, what are we talking about as far as being geographically separated, being many, many miles apart or just kind of across town or?
2: There's a bit of a stuff that uh, we should look into, which is that different markets have different options when you get back into the questions of what is the blast radius of the risk you're trying to manage? Obviously, if I'm on the Florida coast and I'm worried about the hurricane bearing in, having another data center across town isn't really going to help me much in that case. But in Europe, we have some advantages that there's an awful lot of dark fiber out there and it's getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. I've got some clients that are having managed 10 gig connections for about 1200 euros a month.
0: Pretty short money for that, yeah.
2: Yeah, and generally speaking, there's a really nice collection of co-location facilities all around the outskirts of Paris. So a lot of people that have their server room physically in their area or in their buildings in downtown, well, they can get to uh, some stuff between 20 and 30 kilometers away, which is outside of the floodplain from the the Seine coming through town, which has been one of the number one issues, which is that's what will cut power. And so this gives them that active-active, no-thinking, sort of automatic failover if they need it.
1: When you bring up the two-site or three-site, I guess the first thing that enters my head is business justification because, I don't know, three-sites to me feels more like a nerdy exercise in spending a lot of money versus a two-site where the business is probably tempted by the idea. But why specifically would a non-technical person be thumbs up and say, let's go ahead and do a stretch cluster. I'm good with this.
2: Well, the first one I've seen a lot of places go to, especially with the VMware sites, is from an operational standpoint, if I have my one site and I have a disaster recovery site, the one thing I really never, ever, ever want to have to do is push that big red button and say, launch my disaster recovery plan. Because then I'm going to discover all the things that really didn't get tested the last time I did this. And I will also run into the problem that some of these days I will have to fail back. And again, that's another one that is built into some systems, but let's face it, it's probably never tested all the way from end to end. And if you're looking at a proper stretched cluster, everything's inactive, active, and you have the benefit that this system here is going to be running, and you know it's running all the time. So if you can take one side of your site, one of your sites down, then you know it's working. You've already got workloads running on that other site at the same time. So this one definitely is a really, really useful operational standpoint. Is that I have no big red button to push. The system pushes it all by itself if it has to.
1: Yeah, I've always I've always had trouble swallowing that one. Certainly I've 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 heard the reason before, but I guess as a the leadership within a company is willing to say, we'll just spend gobs of money to have a second site that's all up and available because we suck at disaster recovery. I don't know. It just I know there's a lot of technical debt that folks have to pay down, but eventually you have to pay that down. And it feels like if you just design everything correctly in the first place, it shouldn't be such a terrifying idea of pushing the big red button or even having a big red button.
2: I, I agree that you're absolutely right, that it shouldn't be. Uh, the practical upshot is it actually usually is. And the other problem, actually, the thing that I've ended up looking at a number of customers is that it's actually cheaper over time. Because if you manage a disaster recovery plan correctly at any kind of scale – You need to have people dedicated to keeping that plan up to date. You need to have people dedicated to uh, observing that stuff. You need to reserve a testing site, so you need to have testing time. Once a year, you better be able to tell your auditors, yes, we did a complete test. So one weekend, we uh, pulled in all the team from IT operations, and we went through this, and we had the uh, application owners in to verify that their applications came up correctly according to plan. When you start adding up all those operational soft costs, they actually can be more expensive than just buying another second set of kit. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I can see that like we could buy two of everything or operational efficiency. Let's just buy two of everything. And I I also get it, especially having done a considerable amount of work in kind of Western Europe where being able to get internet connectivity and, you know, data center co-location space kind of geographically diverse within country. Typically they don't want to leave country, but it's not the end of the world. You can do metro clusters and whatnot without a whole lot of heavy lift compared to here in the States where I, I know that a number of companies I've worked with from a design perspective would say crazy stuff. Like I want a New York data center and a Hawaii data center or something like that. Oh, yeah. And I like, there's physically no way to keep those in sync at real time. It's going to be async. And uh, I was like, your, your constraints and your requirements are kind of
2: at odds with one another. Yeah. It's the good old fashioned. Okay. Let's go back to management and explain the laws of physics to them once again.
1: Maybe if you show up to the data center with the steampunk outfit and time machine, that might work. <laughs>
2: or carrier pigeons or you can we can always do the i'll throw the hard disks in the back of the truck and we'll say latency versus bandwidth how are we going to play this game
1: man virtualization has certainly made designing for a stretch cluster both easier because hey shared storage it's already included in the design blah 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 and harder because not all management components understand simple things like locality and latency So I would say just make sure to consider this when you're introducing stretch clusters into your design. Although the past five, I don't know, or so years have made this process considerably more top of mind by your infrastructure vendors and your software vendors than ever before. What is on your mind, Ethan?
0: Well, uh, complexity, again, I think if you go with a design like this where you're stretching clusters, you are taking on a certain amount of complexity. You're dealing with active-active in a geographically separated way, with additional protocols and so on that make all of it work. And that's fine. I mean, you're getting benefits for that, but but you have to ask yourself, is it a fair trade-off, the complexity that you are introducing to your environment for the benefit that you get out of it? It's like any technology. You You implement it for a reason. It solves a business problem that you have. And so it presumably, hopefully, is worth that trade-off. But... Is stretch clusters a nice to have or a need to have for your business? Because you really, again, are introducing complexity here. And, and so that trade off is something to be considered.
1: Well, I think we've definitely dug into some of the technical constraints and requirements and kind of fleshed out the surface area that is stretch clustering. Now let's talk about why they may be a horrible raging dumpster fire. Although those are my <laughs> words. Let's let's just say not so good of an idea. <laughs> and the first thing I wanted to bring up was something we, we've hit on it earlier, was synchronization. Before we actually started recording, you were telling us this pretty cool story about partitioning versus split brain and, and how to kind of reconcile after a partition happened. So, Eric, just kind of lead into this whole synchronization problem and kind of the challenges you've seen in the past.
2: Well, network design is always a tough one. The first thing is whenever you're building two systems, if you want to avoid the split brain, somewhere out there in the world, there has to be a witness or some other, uh, whatever they call it, a heartbeat monitor. Someone out there who's a third party who can say, look, at least we've got two of us, so we're going to go along. And the other guy, if he's all by himself, he will be all by himself. That's fine. You have to make sure that you properly protect all the network paths and you use alternate network paths to put uh, this witness uh, node somewhere else in the system now. All the modern systems do have them, and they're all well-designed now. So the actual split-brain issue is becoming much, much less of an issue. In fact, the technology, this has all been lessons learned by most of the major players, well, all of the major players, let's be honest. So that's not as much of an issue as it used to be. The problem is sometimes you run into some strange network failure modes where... You did all of your validation testing where you did all the traditional things, which is I unplugged the cable from switch one to switch two, and I unplugged the second one, and we had a generated split-brain situation, network partition. And the uh, witness was off on its third network and said, that's fine, that's fine, I'm still here, so I've got contact with the right people, and we're all good. Unfortunately, sometimes you'll run into situations where the network will do strange things. No. Uh, I had an incident where we had a hiccup on a DWDM link, And the switches, for some strange reason, decided that, well, you know what, I'm not quite sure what's going on here, so I'm just going to stop forwarding for about 15 seconds. And I think it was renegotiating its spanning tree, but we're still not sure. There was nothing in the logs. But I had all traffic on my storage VLAN stop, even to things that were not at all linked to the uh, synchronized uh, high availability storage. I had a couple of other local systems that all just lost their connection at the same time. So we assumed that at that point there was just no traffic forwarding going on there.
0: And again, you're stressing that this is a a gray failure, not a not a hard failure like you would replicate in testing by unplugging something. It is a failure where it stops working for a little while or it's sort of working, but, you know, the throughput's off or, you know, those kind of situations, yeah? Exactly.
2: And the problem with those ones is they're almost impossible to actually generate in testing because you don't know the way your switch is going to fail and you have to make sure your firmware is at the right level and you discover bugs sometimes in the switches. And the interesting one about that one was simply that what happened was the storage systems, once they stopped seeing anything in any traffic at all, including talking to their witness, basically said, well, I'm going to do the safe thing and just stop serving up storage till so we know what the hell is going on. Whoops. I think I made that an uh, adult only one.
1: <laughs> but that's the point. It's supposed to, <laughs> well, it's supposed well, it's to it fail safe, it. right? And, and to me, it's more of a true that's failure right. if it doesn't fail safe, because that's literally the design of a fail safe. And so it's just doing its job.
2: Exactly. No, it did its job, and it did it exactly well in yeah. all of 15 seconds. It, and it was walking through the logs. It was like it behaved, uh, behaved as designed. And that was actually the correct thing for it to do in this particular case, which was if you have no communication with either partner and you have no witness, well, then you stop serving up data to make sure that you don't come into a split-brain situation. We have to reconcile stuff from both sides. So that was exactly the right thing to do. The problem was it happened awfully quickly. And at that point, it took about three months for back and forth to figure out what was going on and where it came from. And there's actually no, still no hard reason anyone's been able to give for that behavior in that particular instance.
1: I've had it where the other truth is is evident, where the failure is very known, but it's one of those things where you never think about testing. We were doing a a hospital deployment. We had a, a stretch cluster and just some routine maintenance. It was swapping out an SFP on a fiber channel switch and changed it out from, like, something from two gig to four gig or eight gig and accidentally put a four gig in. either way it was a hardware issue. And just somehow that caused this extremely redundant system to completely crap the bed and carry over that to the other site. And it's just the, the, like, how do you even think to test for that? It's just a really random thing that the only way you learn is through wisdom, which is the experience of failure.
2: Well, it's the things that I have learned about that is number one, When you're designing these, isolate your storage and your operational networks completely physically. And the second thing I've discovered is that for the storage side of the network, buy the dumbest switches you can find. (laughs) You don't want any intelligence in there at all. You want it simply to go, if there's something that hiccups, just shut the port down. Don't ask questions. Just stop. And that is actually the best outcome you can possibly get. So don't buy fancy, expensive, high-end switches for the network. Just buy something that has a really, really fast forwarding plane and does nothing else.
0: Oh, we got to dig into this, Eric. So you said a couple of things there. One, keep your storage network and your operational network separate. So, do you by operational network do you mean the network that the IT admin folks run on to to manage the equipment, or do you mean the storage has storage traffic, operational traffic has all the other traffic, and we're not going to converge these two?
2: Yeah. Well, I would operational would be basically anything where your applications are living. So that would include obviously operational ad uh, management uh, management flows as well.
0: Got it. Got it. Okay. So, you are not, so you're not a fan of what is, well, I don't know about common, but certainly a lot of data centers have gone the route of converging storage and operational traffic by your definition into one great big converged fabric, and they run them all over the same. Not
2: Not a fan, eh? I would say that's fine if you're in a data center and not in a stretch cluster. Ah, okay. Because we're exposing ourselves to some other stranger failure stranger failure modes that can be hard to predict and hard to react to.
0: So then your storage network would, from a stretched cluster perspective, you would make you know that stretch, whatever fiber is available, DWDM, wavelength, whatever's available to you between the two facilities, you would isolate some component of that just for the storage? I
2: would probably go as far as sharing the DWDM boxes. That should not be an issue. Remembering that if you get a hiccup on one of those lines, it will be hiccuping across your application traffic and your storage traffic but all the places that i've seen strange behavior come in has been when we have problems with the interconnection between the two sites
1: i guess ethan i think that's oh, it, i and would that consider is, that it's a lot easier to juggle flaming bowling pins when you're not also on stilts you know just keep it simple yeah, on the lower end yes
0: yeah no, it it well. It, it's a great point from a design perspective. Absolutely, yeah. Why wouldn't you keep those things isolated for for exactly that reason? Why would you juggle more things than you need to? during a time of crisis. It, convergence is all fine and wonderful when it's all working, but it's when it's not. And what is your mean time to recovery? How long does it take you to put all the fires out and get everything back up? When you have separated lengths, then yeah, absolutely, uh, your life's going to be in better shape. But cost. So it comes back to how much is this going to cost you to add in that extra redundancy, which is going to depend widely on the market you're in.
2: But that's exactly why I get back to the point of for all of your complicated uh, firewall network overlays containerized systems yeah buy big expensive smart uh, switches that will do virtualization and everything else you need to do but on the storage like i said it doesn't have to be expensive buy the the cheapest thing that's got a fast forwarding plane and does your 10 gigabit or whatever your run your line rate is 10 25 but just buy dumb stupid cheap switches for that that's all you need hmm.
0: Yeah, fair enough. And then I guess the you know the cost of the WAN link in between the, the two facilities may come up as well, again, depending on market.
2: Yeah, generally speaking, we end up sharing those. So you'd still just run dark fiber between and have your DWDM uh, boxes at both ends. But then as soon as they get into the other site, they split out into the two uh, separate switching environments.
1: And I'd, I'd imagine that taking that level of precaution is a pretty minor, almost rounding error on the total investment made to have these dual active sites – Versus trying to save, you know, what, a half a percent
2: on consolidating or or unifying those two different things? Yeah. And the one place that I have seen where those strange behaviors have happened, it's when I've had those converged environments. And they've got those switches doing a lot of work, keeping track of lots of other things than just forwarding my storage traffic around
0: yeah they do. That's exactly right. Those switches are going to be doing probably have a QOS scheme of some sort running. They're going to have uh, they're going to be listening to a lot of things at layer two, like pause frames for storage traffic that's not allowed to drop anything. You need to be able to track that. They'll be doing network virtualization and segmentation in some way possibly uh, with overlays that add complexity to things. So that, that's a very fair observation that those switches in a converged environment, you are asking a lot of them to do what they do. At least FCOE is pretty much gone. No one talks about that.
1: Uh, more than one hop is still, or less than uh, zero hop is still around, I
2: should say. Yeah. But I actually haven't ever seen anyone using FCOE in production.
1: I've seen one person. I was called in because it wasn't working Yes, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when you do it right, it can work great. It's just the problem there is the silo busting. You have It's either the network or the SAN team that configures the unified part. And so one of the two is going to be broken. Either no one knows how to zone or no one knows how to set up a VLAN. Exactly. Yes, true enough.
0: Eric, I want to dive into latency a, a little bit more deeply. We mentioned it, you know, talked about there are applications that have to be a certain number of milliseconds apart and no more, or they don't work right. Mm-hmm. Uh, can can we dive into why latency is a concern? What sort of operations are happening across the wide area link between the two? sites that are housing the stretch cluster that make latency a concern so that we understand why this is a thing to be aware of? Well, the key thing is normally what you have to be worried about is not so much the application
2: layer traffic, but it's again, getting back to the storage level. The problem you're going to run into is every single write operation is going to have to make, have to make a round trip to the other site before you're going to be able to give that back to your, uh, your virtual machine or your application and say, yep, I've got this data. We're good to go. And some applications are very, very sensitive to latency. Other applications really couldn't care less. So a lot of that uh, depends on what you're dealing with. I did one study for a company that had two sites that were about 80 kilometers apart. And that was getting really at the upper, upper limit of what you can safely do or reasonably do for any kind of stretch cluster. And what we ended up having to do was go through and audit all the applications to find out which ones were able to uh, work with that latency, which was getting up to about 18 milliseconds round trip. So that means for every single write operation, basically means everybody's working with slow disks, is what it feels like. So it doesn't even matter which, well, this was a few years ago, so everyone just had slow disks, so it didn't really matter. But at the time, the question always comes down to, can you get used to this? Now, there's some applications that you can point to directly, like specifically mail servers, that will just fall over if you start giving them excessive latency uh, all the time. So we ended up isolating some of their applications, specifically databases, and putting up other different kinds of data protection on those ones, whereas a lot of the general back office stuff, it was just fine running over even that uh, 18 millisecond uh, distance. Yeah. Now, that said, that's an extreme case. I was
1: going to say, I imagine a lot of applications of the class that you're talking about
2: would probably be better served with replicating themselves
1: versus the infrastructure layer doing it for them.
2: And that's exactly what we did. We were looking at stuff like the mail servers were Lotus Notes and it was easier setting up the Lotus Notes clustering to do that stuff. Now the longest one I've ever seen, I didn't actually work on it, but I did talk to some of the guys that worked on it. They had a 95-kilometer link across uh, basically a tunnel in through a mountain and the only thing that was going across that was uh, video feeds basically. So in that case, it was very, very long, high latency, but it's just fill the pipe up and if you lose the last whatever's in the pipe, if you have a failure, well, that's that's life.
0: Is state tracking of live sessions much of a thing in, uh, in, in modern clusters? I know some of the applications I had to support, one of the big things was, okay, this is stretched, and if people come in and hit this front-end web server, let's say, all the sessions are going to be mirrored to another cluster member. That way, if the first cluster member falls over and people hit the second cluster member after the failover event, they're fine because we know about session. Is uh, that state tracking thing that we're concerned about?
2: Generally speaking, not really. Uh, The biggest problem is there's so few applications that are actually designed to be able to do that well. And once you add, like you're getting back to the latency issue, once you add that extra latency hop for everything that has to be uh, given to both sides, it really doesn't scale well at all. I haven't seen anyone really doing anything at that application layer that is at high latency that isn't going to some kind of alternate, uh, eventually consistent type design.
1: Well, since we're on the topic of, you know, kind of the horrible stories around stretch clustering, what about just the intrinsic nature of the complexity that's introduced with the design like this? Do you ever walk in and say, you know what, this is just going to add too much to the plates of the architects and engineers here. Let's solve this another way or or seeing this kind of as a constraint in and of
2: itself? Well, actually, the interesting part is the bigger the shop I think the less likely this kind of stretch clustering, especially based on your hypervisor with a storage system underneath it also being uh, replicated in real time, the bigger the shop, the more chances are they've got developers that have the chops to handle this at the application layer, which gets us into more, again, back into the cloud stuff. Where I see the uh, stretch clusters really being their sweet spot is in that small to mid-market that doesn't have the skills. If you architect it correctly... They can run this just as an active-active, and it will just work properly all by its own, and you will have the advantage of being able to use all of your equipment and run them at 50% load at all times, which means they all have lots of headroom to run the rest of the time. But in the smaller shops, they don't really have a lot of alternatives. They're just running off-the-shelf applications for the most part. Uh, Their IT teams are small and generally don't have a huge depth of competency, so they just want something that says, okay, give me a hyperconverged system, put five nodes over here, five nodes over there, and I'm done. And it's built into the HCI solution that says, declare one site, declare the other site, tell me which servers belong to this site, I'll take care of the rest for you. Now, you still need to do the design for the witness part and getting all the uh, network redundancy, but on the grand scheme of things, you do that once, and then you just monitor it. True.
1: It has taken something that used to require a you know a small army of highly specialized consultants. It's now kind of, I'll say, kind of frivolously like a push button type operation for more modern software slash infrastructure packaging.
2: It's getting pretty close when you look at things like the the Nutanix, when you look at uh, the vSAN implementations, where it's just sort of like, this is a checkbox. And as long as you follow the procedures and the documentation is actually really, really solid, explaining what you need to do, why you need to do it, and how to make sure it's working. So we've come a long way from the really exotic uh, deploy an army. Now the army's up at the developer layer working on the application stack, so they don't care what the infrastructure guys do. Which is where it should be. (laughs) (laughs) Well, as long as they get the pager. True.
0: One thing that hit me as we were talking through this is that you need an application that is designed to work well in a stretched cluster environment. That means that stretched clusters aren't just an infrastructure team problem. Oh, we got to figure out how to do the clusters and set up the witness and, and so on. This is actually a silo buster. You need to get everybody on board and make sure that everyone understands what happens in failure scenarios or in partial failure scenarios, and, and that the application and the backend data stores are all set up to handle this. Got to get everybody around the table. Chris, what's on your mind? I'd stretch a cluster with you, Ethan. Let's make it happen. Um, um,
1: Okay. But moving on, I think it's actually interesting and I would also say comforting to lean towards the idea of acquiring bare bones hardware that doesn't have all the bells and whistles and And all that nonsense that just kind of gets in the way of typical operations in in the best scenario. I mean, after all, most designs don't really call out for these features, so why not just remove the complexity from having them in the first place? If you can. It's something to consider. Don't uh, pile on every feature known to the universe for no reason.
0: We understand what stretch clusters are. We have learned some of the things that make them easy to get wrong. How we can go so horribly, horribly wrong. Well, all right. Let's say we maybe don't stretch clusters. Are there alternatives? What do we do instead? And I think that's a good place for our conversation to turn now. Um, what are your, what are some thoughts here about maybe a unique cluster at each site and you're synchronizing data sets or, or is that it's still a stretch cluster in your mind?
2: Well, it isn't really a stretch cluster from the idea that it should be an active active when we get into compute clusters at each site and we're synchronizing data, that sounds an awful lot like disaster recovery when you get right down to it. So we're back to the same situation, which is my applications run on the local data and we have some kind of data mover to make sure there's a copy elsewhere, but it's not just a live switch to make it go and work on the other side. What does change is when we start looking at some of the other newer technologies where we've got the data side of things is based on some kind of eventually consistent back end. The problem is almost all of the standard off-the-shelf enterprise applications will never, never be able to work with that kind of technology until they evolve into becoming a cloud version of what they are today.
1: What about the idea of a, I say, eventually consistent back end? Um, I guess partially in my mind, it kind of reminds me of the airline system where it never really checks the back end until you go to purchase the ticket. You know, everything's just kind of front ended and cached. something like that. Would that potentially check the box without having to do all
2: the costly stretch cluster work? Well, I think we've got some additional costs in keeping the airline system, reservation system working. But yeah, in fact, there's a lot of other systems that do work that way. That's actually the way most banking systems work as well. You're not actually tapping onto your bank account. Most of the time, you're just going through some kind of AI uh, authorization check, which is, is this a good odd that this is a legal transaction? Yeah, probably we're fine. So we're not actually having to go all the way back through the system between banks. In fact, they don't actually do the transactions when you take money out from an ATM all they do is they tally up each of them at the end of the day and basically say, "Well, I took out uh, your clients took out you know $100,000 from my ATMs, and my clients took out $150,000 from your ATMs. So uh, let's just settle up for that $50,000 difference." So there's an awful lot of applications that work that way. But as soon as you start getting there, the key word comes back in: it's the application layer. So we're no longer talking about the storage layer at all. We're talking about another level of abstraction, much much higher up the stack that is ensuring that the right data gets to the right place at the right time. Hmm.
1: Which is considerably um, impressive, considering most of the ATMs I see are running Windows 95 or old AS400 code.
2: Yeah, well, this is the whole thing (laughs) why they can't do it in real time, because uh, can you imagine those Windows 95 systems actually having to wait all the way to get into the back end of these systems? And do you really want them having the possibility of diving that far into the back end? No, I'd rather have them talk to an API that just says, okay, this is probably good good enough for today. Just depends on if they're using
1: Clippy to help
2: with the transaction. But
0: I I digress. Ethan, (laughs) move on. Let's move on. (laughs) (laughs) So Eric, I want to run a a kind of an old school design, but uh, it still has some merit, I think. Maybe it doesn't. And that's what I want to ask you. And that is the active standby data center design. You've got two copies of the app. There is only one of the data centers is actively processing against the app. And then there's data that's replicated between each data center. So if site, whichever site is active falls over, site two picks up where that one left off. And then you can go back to prioritizing one site versus the other when uh, things are back to normal. Does that still have merit today? I think it still has its place in some kinds of architectures. The big one is
2: that's assuming your whole stack is designed for that from the ground up. And I think there's an awful lot of companies out there that just aren't well, it gets back to that disaster recovery plan. Say, at some point, if it falls over, or even if it's a planned failover, because uh, there's some of the big banking systems, they actually do work on triple data center design where they fail over from one to the other, and they actually fail over on purpose to validate it on a regular basis. So there are still reasons to be doing it that way. Usually, if you've got a lot of mainframe and AS400 backend stuff that's still out there, but if you're working in a modern virtualized environment or a containerized environment, well, actually, containers take us into another different space. We'll talk about that in a sec. But if you're working from your VM is your operational unit of design, uh, we can move those around and we can keep them active-active. Uh, active standby is pretty more reliable when we get into that stuff. When you're talking about things like we've got Zerto and various other products that will make that as painless as possible. And in some cases, but it gets back to the same thing. It ends up actually not really being that much cheaper assuming you meet all the basic requirements. Because like you said, if you've got New York and Hawaii or your main offices or New York and San Francisco, this isn't going to work. You're going to have to do something different anyway.
0: It's interesting what you said about uh, the cost being about the same in the end. And if it's active standby, you've actually taken some of that cost and shelved it. You're saying, I don't want to process against that. It's standby. It's my backup. It's my just-in-case stuff instead of actively being able to run compute and so on against all the nodes that are there.
2: Well, that's one of the ones that I do see management sometimes push back on the old school disaster recovery or active standby design is they're going, I'm paying for all this equipment and it's not doing anything. Whereas if I'm working in a somewhat overcommitted environment, so assuming I can load up both sites to say 60% of their nominal charge, Then I can also say, well, and if a disaster happens, we'll be in the middle of a disaster and everyone will just have to suck it up and expect that performance will not be as good as it normally is. So we can actually get more, we can squeeze more out of our available hardware by pushing a few of the limits and overcommitting ourselves a little bit.
1: Hmm. And I I would argue that the active standby model also depends on what you're considering the standby to be doing. Uh, I know when I was doing educational services, active was production and the standby warm site was all the pre-prod. And we just figured, you know, the couple hundred developers, yeah, it would suck if they can't work that day, but it's a disaster. We're willing to make that trade. And so it's like a hot warm or whatever. I mean, it's not always, uh, I I think one thing that management misses out on sometimes is they literally think it's just this dark room with equipment that's, you know, being deprecated and no one's consuming it. And you better believe if I know there's IT stuff over there, I'm going to use the heck out of it. (laughs) Whether or not it's standby or not is irrelevant.
2: That's true. Even if it wasn't part of the process when you started, it's like, hey, these servers are sitting there, and nobody's using them. Okay, they're mine now. And it gets you the ad- advantage. At least you know they're working, too.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, you're still having to push the big red button. Things still have to fail over to the standby site, and you have to you know, power down or at least reduce the performance of what's going on over there. But it, it doesn't have to be just you know the Maytag man sitting there with powered-off equipment waiting. Although, I'm thinking about... Uh, the hipster new way of doing things with microservices and functions as a service and things like that. Wouldn't that essentially, I mean, essentially that is a very highly available cluster, but it's not your problem, right? Just someone else's data center.
2: Pretty much. And the one thing that I keep coming back to is that's absolutely perfect for all of the application layer, but you're still going to need to protect your data and make sure the data is available. So you still end up having to protect the backend database workloads with something that will be as actively available. Now, you can get around that by using distributed databases. A lot of those things will let you distribute them across multiple sites, so you will have that level of redundancy and availability. But you might be in a situation where you're not going to necessarily have that same atomic level. Each transaction, we're guaranteeing it, will be recorded. So if you have transactions in a distributed database that get written to one site and the latency or whatever other issues come from the way their mechanisms work, it might not show up on the other side. And you might have to be okay with that because you have to imagine things like Google and Facebook and things at that hyperscale level. You know, if if you lost a post, it's really not the end of the world. Although they they usually have enough systems in there to make sure that the redundancy is built in sufficiently well that that doesn't happen. That's fair.
0: How many apps have you seen architected, Eric, where they can deal with the the, the stateless computing thing? In other words, you've got a bunch of microservices and the whole idea of, I'm going to run a transaction against this microservice. There's no state. I don't have to worry about that. I'm just processing this part of the transaction, and that allows the containers to come and go based on load, elastic, and so on. Is that much of a reality, really? It's a reality
2: outside of the majority of the enterprises. Especially in the mid-size. Now, on the bigger end, they're starting to catch up and realizing that, you know, there's some really smart things happening in the internet scale side of things and they're, they're leveraging that and they're taking advantage of it and they're working towards it. The problem I see is that like many things, it's the future is here. It's just not evenly distributed. I've got this huge mid-market that just don't have the tools or the competency. If you talk about them talk to them about containers today, they're like, well, Did the application I just bought get delivered as a container? I'm lucky if it gets delivered as a virtual machine appliance. I've still got stuff where they're sending out guys to run MSI installers on top of Windows servers in some cases.
0: Jeez. Okay. (laughs) What about leveraging other cloud services like a platform as a service as a way to – does that give us any options where we don't have to stretch clusters because, hey, I'm using PaaS? Well, that's one of the good things about these is once
2: you hide all that low-level uh, pieces and you put an abstraction layer over top of it, it helps an awful lot because you get all the – it's, for me, the true platform-as-a-service components, if we were to go by the, the enterprise definition, that's the thing. things like Cloud Foundry uh, and Family. They're giving you all the abstractions so you don't have to deal with the low-level stuff, but you still need to architect the system to make sure at least the data persistence layer is sufficiently well-protected and highly available. Because it's all good if you've got all this on one site, but if it goes away, you really need some way for those containers to go find their data. Otherwise, they're going to be serving up lots of blank
0: pages. It goes back to conversations we've had on this show about architecting cloud and cloud designs. And just because the cloud is accessible and consumable with a swipe of a credit card doesn't make design go away. You still have to think about redundancy and where your data lives and what happens when this particular availability zone is gone and so on. The design still matters.
2: Design is still the big piece, which is, and most of the application layer stuff is becoming much more dynamic. So like you said, you've got the stateless computing at the front end, but ultimately at the end of the day, it's all going to be about the data and how you make it persist. And so you run into the two issues, which is number one, how do I make sure it's always available? And like you said, the multi-region situations, well, you can leverage the tools from Amazon to say, well, turn on the checkbox and my bill just doubled, but I've got a second copy of all this data and they did all the hard work for me. So that's always a good thing. And then you've still got the other complementary part of that data persistence is some way to go back in time when something goes wrong with your data.
0: Well, Eric, this has been a great conversation. This has been insightful, interesting. Um, it's it, it's lovely to hear why things are why things are horrible sometimes, and just have those discussions because it really puts reality on things that, on the surface, on a whiteboard, look amazing, and then you actually do them, and mm, maybe not so amazing. So, so I, I got a couple of more questions for you just to conclude this. Uh, one, you pulled up some resources for folks to find out more about the topic. Could you just highlight what they are?
2: Yeah, they're obviously, they're exceedingly long, well-buried PDF files from various places. But VMware actually has some really phenomenal documentation about designing metro clusters, as they call them. That seems to be the best way I would phrase it for a stretch cluster is you want to be in the same metro space. So they've got some really good recommended uh, practices, uh, white papers, And I threw in another one as well from Nutanix, which has the advantage that they also can work that with uh, the VMware version or with Hyper-V, and I believe they must do it with their own uh, KVM variant as well now too. So they've got some really good ideas, and if you look at the design specs, you start realizing that they are all going exactly the same direction. We know this is a solved problem from a theoretical standpoint. It's just when it rubs up against the real world and some of the other pieces don't quite uh, work the way you expect that you start running into the difficulties.
0: Got it. Okay. Uh, those links will be in the show notes. They are happen to be very long, complex URLs. That there's no point in talking about. But uh, if you look in the show notes in your podcatcher, hopefully the podcatcher uh, w- won't truncate the post and you'll be able to see them. They'll be at the bottom there. And if not, go up to PacketPushers.net. Uh, look for the Data not show. This should be show 152, and you can find those links there. And, and then, Eric, how can people follow you? Uh, well, Twitter, I'm E. Abelson,
2: A-B-L-E. That's an son, as opposed to the son of Abel. And on the InfraGeeks.com, there's a blog there that gets updated to very frequently. No, infrequently is the word I'm looking for.
0: (laughs) <laughs> well, there's some posts out there. I was actually out there checking out your blog, and there's some good stuff in there. Uh, well, thanks, Eric, for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. And uh, to you for listening, uh, we really appreciate that as well. That is it for today's edition of the Data Nuts podcast. Uh, again, a special favor to those of you listening would you register for the next Packet Pushers Virtual Design Clinic at packetpushers.net slash VDC? You get no spam after the event. They are a lot of fun. They're live uh, AMA panels along with presentations by and for network engineers. We We'd appreciate it if you'd uh, join that event. Next one on December the 19th. And while you're on the Packet Pushers website, click around to the subscribe page. We've got all the shows in our network along with our industry news feeds, community tech bloggers, and so much more all in one tidy place for you with a bow and everything. And until then, may your server lights blink, your clusters be stretched appropriately, and your cables be cleanly managed.